Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit, the horror movie review podcast for horror fans and fanatics alike. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, delivering horror movie reviews and discussions of both classic and current films for your twisted pleasure. Please be aware that episodes may include spoilers, and as always, I hope you enjoy. Before today's episode kicks off, I wanted to give a quick content warning as our discussion of The Night House extensively covers, but is not limited to, topics such as depression, PTSD, and suicide. For today's episode of Daily Horror Habit, my guests and I are diving into one of the more slept-on films of 2021, David Bruckner's The Night House, in which Beth, played by Rebecca Hall, is grappling with the sudden passing of her husband. Though in her search for answers behind his death, Beth uncovers dark realities of their relationship and sinister forces that may be at work. And joining me to discuss Bruckner's balancing of a traditional haunting with the damning portrayal of uh, mental illness is my longtime Twitter friend, Kate. Kate, welcome to the show. Woohoo! Thanks for having me, Jay. <laughs> of course, it's so great to uh, finally, you know, get to meet you, but also pick your brain on a movie that uh, I think was surprising in more ways than one for both of us. For sure. Yeah, I was triggered city with this film. Yeah, true horror. I mean, I think that's that's definitely the best way to put it, right? And I think that part of that has to do with the marketing of the movie, because when you suggested it to me that we cover it, it was something that I wasn't familiar with outside of just hearing it announced, but because of COVID and everything, it wasn't really readily available. And from the trailer itself, it doesn't do the best job of like marketing what this movie is actually about. But I think as we uh, will get into like, it's kind of a difficult movie to market at all, right? Based on what it kind of dives into. Absolutely. No, I, right. I thought it was a, a film about a haunted house. And so that was definitely like the intro to it, but that's almost doing it like a disservice, right? Just to label it as that. Right. No, I, I'm so glad that you had a warning before the podcast, because I feel like there was just no warning with what the content was going to be. And I guess that's what you get with horror films. Like maybe you should just be open to being horrified in any manner, but, um, yeah, the mental illness was the fucking devil in this, not kind of, I don't know, we can talk more about that. It was complicated. It was kind of a complicated film. Like it had a couple different strings. Yeah, and I think that that's why at the end of the day, like even if I wasn't expecting the conversation that Bruckner was going to kind of have with the audience in a way, it still ended up resonating and working with me in a way that I don't know. I Horror has always been, and we'll get into it, but like horror has always been sort of this vessel for talking about taboo subjects or real world horrors and whatnot. But this just felt like a very, uh, while it is very triggering at times, like it felt like a realistic portrayal of that within this very obviously supernatural sort of vessel for that conversation. For sure, for sure. And there was just like some like great imagery that was disturbing. So I liked it. I don't want to watch yeah. it again, but I really, <laughs> no, I watched it it's, twice. <laughs> it's definitely one of those, uh, those horror movies where it's like, it's, it. I loved it too. And I really enjoyed it, but it's the type of thing where it is somewhat of a difficult recommendation off the cuff to somebody, right? It's not really a casual viewing experience. And it's one that, I mean, I would, I revisited it twice for this, but it's one that I think I might take some time away from before, uh, Picking it up again. Not exactly a, a feel-good film, I think we can agree. No, not at all. No, not a feel-good movie. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, before we really dive into The Night House and uh, what really makes it such a 
remarkable film for 2021. Uh, for you, what was sort of the first film you remember watching that left an impression on you for, uh, for better or worse? Well, that is such a good question. And I remember The Exorcist terrifying me, but the first horror film that really, I was like, oh, and this is so dumb. And it got, must have gotten me at the right age. It's 2005's Wolf Creek. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and I think the reason why was the characters that were responding to the danger were acting like real people would respond. I didn't feel like a kind of contrived horror film it felt like here are real people in this absurd circumstance and they're responding in a real human way so there was something about the acting in that film that i really responded to and liked the hills have i or uh wolf creek 2 i don't think is as good i will say yeah, I, I, that's usually how it goes, right? With those types of movies, they kind of do the uh, the straight to DVD or straight to Blu-ray or whatever sequel, and it doesn't necessarily always capture the uh, the magic of the original or the terror of the original one, right? Right. And it was they had a big crater. I don't know if you remember the movie. Like it was like crazy people, and then they're they're running around a giant crater in Australia. And then like, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I just, I really liked it. But that's, I think that's the core of a lot of like horror movies that have maybe what you might consider to be like a ludicrous premise, but it's more about seeing how it affects other people, right? And that's something that I think ties into the Nighthouse really well um, in terms of leading from that to the film we're here to chat about. And it's a situation that the supernatural elements of the film are like, of course, they're completely fantastical and outside the realm of what uh, I would assume most of us are going to ever experience, but it's more about the human angle that makes it as effective, I think, as it is, right? While we might not be uh, seeing sort of like spirits and presences in our house that like shape the house and all of these things. Um, I think that Rebecca Hall does a really fantastic job of really conveying that sort of human element that not everybody has had the similar experiences that she has had, but everybody has experienced some form of like grief at a certain point in their life. And that's something that I think really makes this film hit in a way that I was completely unprepared for. And uh, it sounds like you were as well. Yeah, I thought it was, I mean, the visuals, I feel like were they were good and they were disorienting. And I think they did a good job of, so she was drinking throughout the entire thing a lot of brandy and they never really tied that back in other than like he must have really liked brandy or something but a lot of the visuals give you that sense of like being hammered and like the walls are moving and <laughs> you're being i don't know i yeah i was impressed i could i i yeah i was impressed yeah i think that little details like that sort of like build up upon one another for the movie in that it does a good job of presenting a believable, like from a character perspective, a very believable experience of what she's experiencing. But then of course there's all the spooky supernatural stuff, which is what genre fans really want. But I think that again, like the devil is in the details for back of, lack of a better phrase in that you take things like the excessive drinking throughout, you take sort of her going back and looking at all photos and videos and things like that and being upset, but then sort of having this growing disdain for uh, her husband Owen's actions, which for people that uh, at this point, I guess you should have watched the movie before this because we're going to spoil it pretty heavily. But spoiler alert, 
her husband suddenly kills himself out of nowhere, seemingly, uh, and she's trying to grapple with that in a way that, while I have never experienced a situation like that, knock on wood, it's the type of thing where it feels like a very believable portrayal of somebody going through various stages of grief and trauma and things like that. And seeing the sort of coping mechanisms that, I mean, we've seen coping mechanisms like excessive drinking and things like that over in film throughout all the years, but this was done in a way that doesn't feel so hammy. And I think that like you had mentioned that it doesn't necessarily ever tie back in. I think that that's sort of important because it's always a factor which the audience and it's left up to them and like, well, we can interpret it as, well, she's just drunk as hell the entire movie. So of course she's gonna have these sort of like fucked up perspectives on things and interpret the world around her in a way that might be sort of uh, disillusioned and whatnot. But at the same time, like, that's pretty believable if you were experiencing something like that. For sure. I mean, she's really, so I'm, uh, I work at, in a hospice and I'm the counselor, uh, the bereavement coordinator and counselor. And so, um, she literally does everything I recommend against. So she, <laughs> so she's right. helping internally and like really being avoidant and pushing away all of her supports and she's <laughs> drinking heavily and then just, um, isolating. And then, I mean, and there's a part of that that's pretty, it's natural and it's normal, but here's, this was such a big, like, are you fucking kidding me? Is when, I'm sorry, are we not supposed to cuss? Is that okay? No, you can cuss, it's all good, no worries. <laughs> I always forget to say that at the top of the show, I always forget to remind people, you can, spoilers and swears are completely fine. Okay, sorry. Um, so she gets his belongings back in a, Back, like a box and they gave her back the gun he used to kill himself yeah that that part was a uh <laughs> that was like one of my nitpicks with the movie i was like they probably shouldn't have done that that seems like a bit of an oversight and but... then it's not used in the film like there's no like plot point to having the gun right i mean but it does create tension i mean she has a gun now like yeah well i think that that's Again, like that is a, a more realistic, I think maybe even though I'm like, okay, why would the police give this woman that is clearly traumatized, even if she's not expressing it externally, like clearly is traumatized by this and is struggling with this as I would think most people would be. But why would you A, give them a weapon? But at the same time, Bruckner never allows that to like be involved in the film until the very final moments of the movie. Oh, that's right. right. Oh my gosh, which, I can't believe it. We'll get... But to that, but to that, to his credit, though, it never becomes like a central plot point where she's like waving it around the house and then it never sort of like becomes this tool, a uh, plot device, basically, where everybody around her then is like, well, clearly something's wrong. She's like got this gun and she's right. like, which I don't know, that would probably feel maybe a little hammy yeah. or it just wouldn't feel as believable if it, like the weapon all of a sudden became such a prominent part of the overall movie. Um, but that was just, that's just my take on it. Yeah, absolutely. No, it just kind of was, um, I was so confused as to why you would return a handgun to a bereaved person a week after their husband, who lives alone. I don't know. It was just from a crisis standpoint, <laughs> that was not good planning of care, plan of care. 
as uh, as somebody that has been in a uh, part of several crisis teams for their line of work, like yeah, you always want to remove all potential or actual weapons from any scenario. So and also, uh, it was how not triggering. Is that for someone who's dealing with a suicide? I mean, would you like let's say your son um, slits his wrist? Like, are you going to return the bloody knife to the mom? Like, I don't know. We're getting on details that yeah maybe maybe that should have stayed logged in evidence for a few more days other than like a like month. the next week yeah, yeah. <laughs> right but uh, i guess and you're mentioning that your work in uh, grief counseling and whatnot i guess overall and we've touched upon it a little bit but i guess how do you find that bruckner handles such subject matter that i think many still consider to be taboo and just his like delving into mental health and things like that other than of course like the thing with the gun that we mentioned but right. i think overall like more about her stages of grieving but also like how other people react to her grief and whatnot because that's another component to the movie that initially i was kind of conflicted on but it kind of grew on me uh, on my second rewatch yeah i think the friends acted really um how people normally act like kind of weird around you people act weird around people that are grieving because it's just so uncomfortable in our society we don't talk about death we've even gotten out of um talking about why people died like i think there's a scene or there's the part of a snippet of dialogue when they're in the bar and somebody asked like well how did he do it and then was like oh it's like that used to be like a really normal part of how we communicated it is like asking why people died and i thought that i don't know i think that he that was great my one of my favorite parts was how he set that tone was at the very beginning when um the very first scene and she takes the casserole and she just throws it away like i mm -hmm. love that like and that really also helps with character development because you're seeing that like this is a woman of her own like she's she's not uh attached to conventions like she's gonna just feel this grief in whatever way she you know i don't know i yeah. i thought the friend who's the blonde gal i thought that character was weird i could not get a hand on her it was uh claire claire by sarah goldberg yeah like I kept waiting for Claire to be involved in the like the horror side of the plot in some way. Yeah, so I mean, I, I don't know. Her character I didn't find was super convincing that it's Beth's essentially best friend, right? right? I didn't I thought that she behaved in a way that was very similar to everybody else, maybe a little less so in terms of just like the awkwardness with which she approached that conversation about how she's feeling, but like overall, I didn't necessarily see like the connection between these two people or that there was ever much history. It seems like, well, this is like her work friend, but they had only been working together for like a few months or something like it didn't come across as super genuine. Right. Like that she would know to go like, yeah, I completely agree. Like there wasn't enough um, vulnerability between the two of them. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Like they were playing roles. Obviously, they're acting. Yeah, no, but I think that you're right in that it's, I don't know, she, it, it felt like her best friend is like saying the right things, but it just never comes off as like, as maybe forceful as I would hope that a best friend would be if I had something like that happen to me, right? You I think that, her, yeah, she took her yeah. out to a bar, got her hammered, and then was like, I'll just call Bob and I'll yeah. let him take <laughs> yeah. care of the kids. <laughs> right. It'd be like, no, you got your friend hammered, you drove her home. 
regardless of what she's saying she's in acute grief like you don't she has a gun like you're not i know we don't know that but um it's not the best combination i think i would i I mean as uh, with your friends everyone if they are dealing with suicide and they're hammered alone just stay the night with them i mean even if they're just shit face hammered and they fall asleep on the sofa like maybe hang out for a little bit or all night or just hang out keep an eye on your friends that's what's most important let's take care of each other yeah (laughs) but uh yeah i think originally though like that bar scene especially i was like well this kind of amongst the rest of the film that scene felt the most contrived initially where i was like these people are like what are they morons why are they asking these types of questions that could be very triggering to somebody that's experienced that like you really didn't know he was depressed those types of things but on a rewatch i was like well it's such a it's such a again like you said our society doesn't talk about a lot of these things not everybody has exposure to these things so when you learn these types of details maybe which they didn't have i mean how else do you act right you're in a sense of shock like re, i mean recently i had a friend who lost somebody close to them and they confided that in me and i didn't have any heads up about it and they kind of just like i was sitting there for a good like five or ten seconds like don't know what to say I was like, oh, do you, and it was like, I felt like such a moron after I was like, oh, do you like want to hug? They're like, no, I like, I've been grappling with this for a while. Like we don't need to do. And I was just like, felt so stupid because I was like, how do I respond appropriately to this while letting them know I'm here? And then of course you just talking things out or whatnot. And you try to be as supportive as they want you to be. Right. And, but at the same time, I never asked them like, oh, give me the details about it, which was kind of strange, but I guess I understand that uh, initial hesitancy to like know how to behave in a situation like that almost if you aren't uh accustomed to that yes so let this episode of your horror podcast be a (laughs) an awakening for society that you can just ask people what they need (laughs) how they're feeling (laughs) you can say i don't know what to say (laughs) exactly well i think i think yeah that's true like that initial hesitation to show support but not knowing how to can result in an awkwardness that I guess on a rewatch and with that recent experience of mine, it's like I understand it a little bit more, even if it still is a moment where you're like, have these people like never interacted with another person before or something like that? And especially like, I don't know if I want to dig into that conversation in a bar when you are shit faced drunk or whatever. And Claire was so protective of her, which doesn't Mm. kind of fit with how Rebecca Hall's character was presented. Like she was presented as like a pretty self-assured independent woman. And then you have Claire kind of like doing this mothering in a way that I don't know. It was an interesting dynamic. I I think it did help. It was it was as messy as probably it is in real life, too, for sure. And I think that if anything, the sort of like the messiness of how her interactions go with other people really further complements like her isolation as she further spirals down that sort of path, right? Throughout the course of the film where she further removes everybody from her life almost not going to work. And I mean, we see that with her interaction with the parent that comes into her classroom. Oh, I loved that. That was such a great scene. Oh, it was fantastic. I def I definitely appreciated her just like get out of my face. I'll give you what you want. And then if their inability to drop the moment, you kind of just like you just start turning the screws to them and be like, well, what did you want? What did you want to come in here for? Yeah. Oh, that woman. And then I thought that actress did such a she played that perfectly, like really went from fine, like kind of being indignant to feeling extreme guilt and being like, 
and maybe that maybe moving forward that 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 mom character will think twice about asking teachers what their problem is instead of what you never know what anybody's going through right be there for your friends don't always assume you know what other people are going through my husband shot himself in the head in a boat with a gun i didn't know we know we owned <laughs> Also, I, I have a feeling that in, uh, I believe it's upstate New York, like that would have been pretty big news. It'd be pretty unmissable. Right. <laughs> that kind of crime. But I don't know. Some people have their head in the sand more than others. You never know. But I think also that an element of this that, I mean, the film in general, I don't know necessarily works as well as it does if Rebecca Hall is not front and center in this movie. And, you know, she's an actress that previ I think my only other film I'd seen her in was like Ben Affleck's The Town, which... She basically, if you've seen that movie, she basically just plays this sort of like, not a damsel in distress, but she just plays a love interest and is not really well fleshed out or all that developed. And I was not expecting a performance like this from her because of sort of my limited exposure to her. But I mean, how do you think she did with this film that goes in some directions that are um, much darker than uh, I think we've seen in a lot of previous horror films? I, or psychological ones at that. Absolutely, I think that she, I would bet a thousand dollars that Rebecca Hall has experienced depression before and the numbness of, or grief, like ser serious grief, because I think she was able to portray the numbness in confusion. And then, so like what you learn is that her character in the film, what's her name? What's her character's name? Beth. Beth has been struggling with depression since this near-death experience that she had. And um, I just thought she did a great job of portraying someone who's depressed, who's now grieving, and it gets angry. Like, she often moves towards the anger side instead of the sad side. And I thought that was spot on. I don't know. I thought she did a great job. Yeah, and I think that that's, again, what doesn't make it feel um, just contrived, but also doesn't feel like dramatized in a way that I think we see a lot wasn't in terms of sappy. like the portrayals of it. Yeah, it wasn't sappy. I mean, sure, it's one of those tropes where it's like, of course, she's overindulging and drinking and all these things and being self-isolating, but it's more about, I think it's more distressing to see her spiral because it's so internal and it's not external because I think that that, again, is like, We've seen that one side of the coin of depression and all of these things so heavily in media. It's generally like, well, what do they do? They go to work and they cry. They they go home and they cry. They cry in the bar. All that type of stuff, which is not the reality. Uh, I mean, uh, not to say that you can put necessarily statistic on that, but the idea is, is that there's two sides of that coin. And we media in general very heavily relies on one side of that coin which ends up making it turn into a trope, essentially, that is sort of difficult to take seriously all the time. And I think that that's why her performance is so remarkable, because when she does have that very external sort of uh, repulsion of that grief in a way that is very overt and it's unignorable, it works in a way that if it had been in the rest of the film of her just breaking down the whole movie, it lacks that sort of just emphasis on like, oh, this is where she's at. And it's getting worse, if anything. Absolutely. Like, throughout her, all of the scenes, like, for the first 75% of the film, she is always moving. Like, there's not, I mean, there's, she sits at the bar, she sits in the auditorium, but she's never sitting down in the house. Like, she's always walking, listening to that same song. We haven't talked about the song yet. 
so good. I don't know the name of it. I really like. I ended up really liking it, but because I heard it twelve times in the film. But anyway, um, but then it's always when she lays down, when she stops moving, that it's kind of like um, nothing catches up with her. And the and the only way that she stops moving is when she's inebriated to the point Passed that out. she can't move yeah. anymore. Yeah, she passes out, which I would think is pretty realistic in terms of a portrayal of like somebody that is constantly trying to move away from having the uncomfortable conversation. And it's like, well, when's the only time they stop? It's like, well, she's been drinking for five hours now. Like she's literally can't anymore, but she's not cognizant. So it kind of lacks the, uh, the, the true catharsis to maybe begin to move past these certain uh, feelings and whatnot. Yeah, I agree. There's an element of this and taking it back for a moment to like the ways that other people interpret, um, her behavior and things like that. A lot of people are trying to tell her how she should be behaving or how she shouldn't be behaving. And that was an element that I think really stood out to me more so than people's inability to communicate in terms of like being appropriate in terms of asking questions and things like that. It was more so trying to dictate like how somebody should be responding to that, which I mean, I don't have any, uh, I don't have experience working in the field of like mental health or anything like that, but I would assume that you're supposed to approach it where somebody's at and try to guide them in a maybe a healthier direction rather than leading with, you shouldn't be doing that. Because like anybody, whether mental health issues or not, I mean, how many of us like being told to stop doing something or you shouldn't be doing that when, I mean, you don't know, again, coming back to like, you don't know where everybody's coming from or what they're dealing with. So how likely are they to take your advice if you're like, you should stop doing that? Just right out the gate kind of thing. Right. And that just goes to um, how uncomfortable people are with um, mental health in general and talking about serious topics and actually sitting with someone who's in a vulnerable state. So that's why people always gravitate towards you need to be behaving this way, because if you behave this way, I'm going to know how to manage that. I'm going to know how to help you. I'm going to see that you're doing what you need to do right now. I don't see that you are doing what you need to do because I only know this little pit, my own experiences. Yeah. I didn't catch onto that too much, but you're absolutely right. That's, um, and it's just, you know, that would be a giant no-no in my field of work to invalidate anyone's, like, regardless of what they're doing, as long as they're not putting themselves in danger, like. Right. With it, within reason, right? I guess that should have been my caveat. But I think, yeah, in not understanding what I feel like it, well, part of it is just, I mean, that is the human reaction, right? If you don't understand something, trying to put it in somewhat of a familiar box, but when it's that overt and the stakes could potentially be that high, I suppose in a situation like that, it becomes even more paramount that you don't do that. It's as if no one Googled how to help your friend whose partners killed themselves. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, that that is true. Like, I guess, again, like the best friend, not to like harp on that, but like the best friend, Claire, you would think she would have tried to be a little more forceful without being um, kind of like all the things I just said, right? The idea that she might like, she's supposedly the best friend. So you would think she might be the one to be like a little more forceful in certain suggestions because they have that relationship, right? It's kind of like if you were, if a friend confides something in you versus a coworker confides something in you, you're like, well, if a coworker is going to confide in me, I can, I can give a suggestion, but I don't have that kind of relationship. Whereas if it's supposedly your best friend, you might be a little more forceful and just being like, well, listen, I know you pretty well. We have this established history. I can say certain things that I can't say to somebody that's a casual acquaintance, perhaps, if that right. makes sense. Yeah. 
you can just be a little bit more hardcore because they know that it's uh, yeah. from the a good place. Yeah. It almost felt like, I know, we're harping on Claire a lot, but it almost felt like Claire was playing a role. Like, I have to play the caring friend instead of actually being the caring friend. Yeah, okay. Well, we're done talking about Claire. Yeah, we're done talking about Claire. (laughs) Um, But I think also there's an element to the movie that it's such a small scale scope. And this is something that I really like about Bruckner's filmmaking. And um, if you haven't seen his other movie that he has on Netflix called The Ritual, that's another movie that has a very small scope, but much like The Nighthouse, he has this ability to make small, like handful of cast characters, only a handful of locations. It feels very like a larger production than it actually is, which I think is a rare quality because again, like. This movie only has four or five locations. There's only probably five characters max. And yet you kind of feel the weight that Rebecca Hall has or is feeling with what she's dealing with. Just like the sense of um, the stakes, I think. It always feels very kind of just brooding. Like you're never allowed to forget like there's something else going on and we'll get more into the supernatural parts. But I mean, did you kind of feel that way? Did you feel that it was like a larger movie than it actually ended up being? Yes, especially like with the neighbor in her walking in the woods and finding the second location and um, the fantasy or hallucination, whatever it was, of the second house, like the fully developed second house with, well, no. And then they went to the bookstore. So you get to sit and she's driving. No, for sure. Like now I don't analyze films like you do. So now that you're saying this, I'm like, yes, I felt like. I would I wonder what the budget was for it. You know what I mean? I'm thinking this was like twenty million dollars, but it's probably like not that much. I don't know. I don't know how much things cost. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Yeah, there's no but they didn't list the budget and it didn't make a lot just because of like COVID, right? It was supposed yeah. to come out last year. It got screened at Sundance or one of those film festivals and then they kept delaying it and then like you, we had a in Massachusetts, at least, we had a uh, much limited release in terms of like it was in one theater, I think, for two weekends, maybe, and then it was gone sort of thing. So it was like it doesn't surprise me that it didn't make a lot of money, but I would hope that at the very least it kind of just further shows that Bruckner is this director that can do a lot with very little. And that film, The Ritual, that I mentioned is it's set. They filmed it in another country. It has a somewhat bigger cast, but it still feels very small scale but it feels like the stakes are basically like the world, even though at the end of the day, if these characters end up dying, how many people are really gonna take notice of that? It's only a handful at the end of the day, but he just has a great way of, I think, doing a lot with very little that doesn't feel, I don't know, it doesn't feel like overtly indie horror. Like you can see the sort of, the short uh, shortcuts and things like that maybe that they had to take. This just feels like a 20, $30 million production when For sure. in actuality, like- it would probably be 10 million, I bet. You're probably, yeah, you're probably right. Like the whole, um, my least favorite scary, like it's the scariest I, part of the movie, but it's my, also my least favorite. Cause it just creeped me out where she was like starting to be intimate with a ghost and the fingertips, you can see the fingertips depressed. And while I was watching that the second time I was like, I wonder how they got that practical <laughs> practical like how do they 
Because that was so good. I really liked it. That whole part of we the murders and that was that really that was in the interesting part of the film where I was like, what is he? You really start to question him. I still question him ultimately, like why he ended up. I don't know. He was trying to trick him because of the book. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't want to. Go I think on a tangent, but no, please. I, I I love tangents. Tangents are part of why uh, I love talking to other people because I myself find myself doing tangents on uh, various various ideas and topics that come up. So, um, but I think a big part of what makes those scares work as well as they do, especially like the one you mentioned, which I want to come back to because that's honestly it's probably the most terrifying part of the movie for me. Yeah. Um, outside of the way the movie begins, though, like Bruckner does, I think a really good job of scaling the scares, which make them almost more believable, right? Because it is all about this character's spiral and her sort of further deteriorating mental health, but it doesn't start overtly creepy, right? There's always an explanation for what happens early on, whereas the very first, it's not even a scare, but it's more so just a super disturbing moment to like let the viewer know where she's at is when she's daydreaming in her classroom, right? And she's when that parent walks in, and she looks down at the screen and she's like browsing handguns and stuff and she slams the laptop shut like that is such a that's probably the most disturbing moment of the movie for me this idea that you could be in a pl- in a headspace where you don't even realize you're doing that yeah and then you're like oh shit all of a sudden you have to close your laptop you don't and it's kind of like even though she's got a chalkboard behind her it's like you don't you want to look over your shoulder and make sure nobody saw you doing that absolutely that's like real that's psychological horror i think this movie great job of balancing both i think he did a really good job with the tone like yeah i never felt in the fact that i'm still like thinking about how it all comes together is a credit to that like i'm still thinking about the film that's one of my favorite elements of like psychological horror like this in that it's believable on both fronts right or maybe rather the supernatural elements of it are they don't feel as like cheesy or corny or whatever some people might view them as is like, well, you either believe in hauntings or you don't, right? And I think that it's the attention to making her deteriorating mental state is what really sells those scares because it feels believable to a certain extent. And of course, you're invested in this character, but I mean, even if the haunting ends up being a figment of her imagination, it doesn't really take away from her portrayal of a mental illness or just her character's arc, right? Because even if you remove I mean, nobody else uh, notices the supernatural parts that happen in the movie other than her. But at the end of the day, it ends up being this person that if you look at her arc, it's like she starts out traumatized and depressed, PTSD, and it spirals, spirals, spirals. And then she finds herself in the boat at the end of the movie. So whether or not the haunting ended up being real, she ends up at the same place. And it's you can sell that just as well, whether or not there was the horror element or not, which I mean, the horror part's like icing on the cake for me. But um, it's just it just helps kind of make this more than just another haunting movie, which this clearly is not. And that is what happens in real life. Like people are mentally ill and they think people are following them and they think they're haunted and they're really just mentally ill. But then there's, I have, so I've done probably a thousand psych, like thousand interviews with people for their mental health. And the hardest people, they're, it's not hard, but like pe- people that will, they'll start out everything by saying, do you believe in ghosts? And I'm like, yes. And 
what do you mean by that? That's how I have to respond. Like, well, what do you mean? Like, I, I want to believe in ghosts, but like they're having a hard time. And these are like real people in real life. Differentiate between um, our spiritual nature. So like seeing your grandmother after she died or like smelling your grandfather's cologne or, you know, and actually hearing the devils talk to you and actually seeing um, dark shadows in your home that tell you to cut yourself and then smear poop in it like that's real shit that happens in real life so like no i think that's i think this could have been a great movie if he would have um pressed on pressed in either direction either making it more like a true mental illness psychological drama or making it a true um uh supernatural like gotten into the book more like more like the witchcraft like i mean i don't know i'm a fan i still don't want to watch it again <laughs> i was gonna say though i think that that's why horror has always been such a great vessel for talking about subjects that aren't explored in film very readily or if at the very least it makes uncomfortable realities that shouldn't be uncomfortable because we should be conversing about them more so just so that way people are more tuned to normalize how they react it. to them or yeah normalize then it, it won't be a good movie though jay if we normalize it that's fair that's fair it won't be viewed as as taboo but um it it at least strikes me as being a film that exposes people to topics that they are not normally exposed to in a way that's more palatable at least which like there has to be the energy, like, because I guess at the end of the day, it comes down to how this movie was marketed, right? If you market it as dabbling heavily in the mental health aspect, how many people are going to want to watch that, right? It makes them uncomfortable. Whereas horror being the vessel that has some entertainment to it, it kind of forces them to be exposed to something in a way that as triggering as it can be, like we said, it still feels, at least for me, more palatable than suggesting, oh, I watch a drama about this very uncomfortable subject matter, which... It might be important, but I don't necessarily know. Like, I'm I'm looking for a little bit of the entertainment value. For sure, no, yeah. yeah. I don't know if I would have chosen this film if because if you've ever been a depressed person, she does a good job of emoting it or the numbness. Like I and as a depressed person myself, I was like, okay, sis, I relate. Like, <laughs> been there. I'm the same way in that there's definitely behaviors and coping mechanisms there. Well, maybe I'm not drinking a bottle of brandy every night. That might be a little excessive, but um, it is it is the idea that at the end of the day, the thing, her behavior on some level for everyone, I would think, is familiar in a certain way, not to those extremes, perhaps, but you've more than likely people have seen somebody that react that way where they all of a sudden you don't hear from them as often as you would like to whenever you do they're drinking a little more than usual or things like that whether it be the individual or their acquaintance i think that again it comes down to the fact that it's it's her performance is multifaceted and touching upon different coping mechanisms but at the same time it doesn't lean into one to an almost like a comical portrayal almost right i think that if we get three or four scenes of her falling down or something like that, you're like, okay, you're laying this on a little thick. We got it. Like it kind of just, it introduces these things and then it does a good job of bleeding in and out of the supernatural, the very realistic portrayal of the different stages of grief and coping and things like that in a way that, I mean, it makes for a performance that I wish this movie had been seen more because 
this is a, just a phenomenal performance that drives Bruckner's uh, very interesting blend of the supernatural and uh, the very real. Yeah, for sure. But I want to get into more of the spooky stuff now because we, yes. we, we, it's as Halloween. important as uh, it is, it's a little bit of a downer. It is Halloween, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that scene that you mentioned at the very end of the film, which kind of kicks off the finale portion of the movie, right? Throughout the movie, it sort of builds in a way that is familiar and gradual and yet it's deployed in a way that is very effective, right? She starts hearing noises in the house. She at one point hallucinates as she sees him out in the lake. And then at he the penultimate the moment, right. yeah, he calls the phone. He's texting her and like whispering to her and playing their song, which now I regret not knowing the name of the song because we had to hear it 12 times. But I think that it feels like a song that has a, it's an interesting thing because like the song feels at times a little upbeat, but then there's such a negative connotation tied to it that it makes something that might have once been viewed as beautiful to the characters as being very just uh, remo- like somber in a way. Maybe somber is too light of a word to describe it. No, like it was a, it's a, I remember thinking like, this is a true folk song. Like, <laughs> yeah, and I kind of liked it, but yeah, it definitely took on more of a menacing vibe as, as you continued to hear it and as it connected to their relationship and in, in the in the nothing the, the yeah. shadow the shadow mm-hmm. man i really loved how they used how he used architecture in the faces absolutely which is just like that happens that happened to me all the fucking time where i think i see a face and it's like no i was literally behind a car yesterday and i was looking at something in their back window and i was like that's that looks like a face that's either a mask or something else. And it was a blanket. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the type of thing, right? Where people have, I mean, I think I've had this experience at least, but where you wake up in the middle of the night and you look at like your desk chair or whatever, and you're like, there's somebody sitting in my chair. And then it takes you a few seconds and you realize that's just the laundry I was too lazy to put away. Yeah. And I think that that's an experience that like a lot of people have had, but in this again the way that it's employed you've got that like gorgeous house that was clearly designed by an architect and yet even in that sort of like architectural beauty there's a sinisterness quality to it where she starts seeing these shapes which again it feeds into the idea that the whole thing could be in her head or this thing this presence this uh, shadow is using things that are in her area to fuck with her in a way that makes the whole movie like sinisterly confusing is the way I would put it because is it in her head? Is it real? It doesn't matter because either way is a viable reality, I guess. Right. So she went and found the like, deli- like stupid shack, the second location. And mm-hmm. then she went and took the shower. Is that correct? Yeah. So the shower comes afterwards, right? Or did, or did shit hit the fan and then she, she did stuff. What was the catalyst for all of the, like, witnessing the murders and... So the catalyst is that she, basically, she uncovers the reality of what her husband was doing, right? He wasn't having an affair. He was basically, he becomes infected with this presence that we learn later in the finale is that the presence has been with her all along because of when she had that near-death experience. And the presence, I think the way the presence describes it as, um, you were taken from me. And so he infects the husband basically and is like, the husband needs to make it so that way she goes back to me, which is the husband killing her and giving him to the, giving her, giving her to the presence. 
Um, and it ends up being that like she finds his notes and he's developing this house that is a reverse of their house. And he's meeting all these women that look like her and he's, we find out he's killing them. But it's all done in a way to uh, confuse or trick the presence. So he builds the reverse floor plan so the spirit goes there instead of their house. Or he kills these women that look like his wife, but it's not actually his wife. But he, at the longer he does that, the less convincing it is. So that's when he kind of gets to this point where the only thing he can do is just kill himself because otherwise he's gonna have to kill his wife. Is super fucking heavy. Right, and so it's like this guy is like madly in love with Beth. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I think that that's the most sinister part, right? Is that the viewer spends a good portion of the film feeling Beth's anger towards him, right? This idea that she is so resentful of him for such a large portion of the film, like, and granted that's a, ties into the portrayal of grief and trauma and being like, well, who's, she's so angry that this happened, who's she gonna be angry at? Well, the person that did that, whether or not that's justified or not, like that's not a, to make a judgment call on how somebody chooses to deal with that grief. But I think that it's very easy to feel her pain. It's very palpable. So. Yeah, you spend a good deal of the movie being frustrated that this person is causing pain to that person through their action. But then you learn that his ultimate action is like the ultimate form of showing one's love, I suppose, in that situation, which is a very specific situation. But it goes from being this person that you're like angry with to, oh, he was doing the, I guess, the best thing possible in that specific supernatural situation, for lack of a better way to describe it. Right, and his behavior when he's killing, it's like he's ravenous, or like there's more, he seems really into it. And that's that's what confused me, like, is the, I was, they call it the nothing, because she, she had this near-death experience and and people ask her what's on the other side and she said nothing well I, I no i think that i that was a good point in terms of his like portrayal as being ravenous and i sort of i interpreted that as either it's his possession by the shape or the spirit or whatever and it's making him do these things which is essentially like that presence is living through him and clearly the presence enjoys that or i mean all of the violence in the film is men committing violence against women. So that maybe could have been somewhat of a commentary on Bruckner's part about sort of power structures between men and women, maybe, or something to that effect. I don't know if there's enough evidence to support Welcome that. Welcome to America. Just, <laughs> right. <laughs> it would, again, a facet of the film that's not entirely inaccurate, right? Right. And for as supernatural as it gets. But I think that it's, it's an interesting viewpoint on, or maybe not viewpoint, but just an interesting portrayal of men and re women's relationship with one another and that we see it as like he is pursuing all these various women sexually when there's a supernatural reasoning behind it but at the same time if you take what's happening at face value you see a man that's exhibiting power over defenseless women which again like you said is a reality of america and the world in general in terms of that power structure that's why all those movies where like the woman's vagina has teeth or like you like you know what I mean? All of those, those teeth. Yeah, that movie Teeth. <laughs> Is it's called Teeth? Okay. It's literally quite literally called Teeth. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I brought that up, but no, it was just so in the very like we the first kind of like th I screamed 
it was at the beginning when she goes outside um nothing really supernatural has happened and then she sees these girls run past her mm. on, into the lake and doesn't she see herself or she thinks no it's not her she thinks it's herself right. it's actually mm-hmm. it's one of these girls that looks like her that was scary because i was like what that was creepy as, yeah, yeah that was creepy as hell <laughs> i mean i love the i love that though because that's viewed as being like i don't know some people that maybe were critical of the movie were like well this is just like a series of jump scares but I think it's a series, it's jump scares that are employed very well because the entire movie is not that. And it's not just things jumping at the screen that barely happens, but it's a jump scare in a couple of ways in that you have a moment like that where somebody quite literally runs at the screen, but then also like playing with that um, perspective that you mentioned, the architecture of the house, like those are the most chilling moments of the movie because we've all had experiences like that, but also even in the way it's portrayed and I watched the movie twice, you still almost forget that it's coming to a certain extent because yeah. you're like, yeah, it's just the beam in the house. And then you realize, oh, it turns its face at her and looks at, right at the screen and it's fucking creepy. Woo! And it makes it made me jump both times. But I want to go back to that moment that I you mentioned, I mentioned, and then I got sidetracked. Shocking. But it's uh, the one where she has that embrace with the ghost, right? And we think that it's Owen throughout the entire thing because that is her at her most vulnerable, right? She finally has that outward explosion of grief and whatnot where she's sobbing and she's crying and she's saying that she just wants him to come back to her and then she has this i think it's the second instance where they have a sort of tender embrace the first one was on the dock right where she puts her hand out and then he like they kiss and whatnot but then you see like the bloody footprints on the dock which is creepy in its own right but in this it's a much more intimate physical moment like you would it looks as if like she's about to have like a uh, what is it Patrick Swayze and ghost moment right they're about to have this sort of about to have a, a more than intimate moment with a ghostly being and then you get that moment in the most instant second of that where you learn it's not Owen so which scary. is such a, which literally like puts your skin your hair on end just hearing that because you have that assumption the entire time because it's the way that it's being presented and it's just so fucked and bone chilling because of not only you realize it's not him, but in this very vulnerable and a almost devolves into this sexual act, which is not what the person she thought it was, which is equally terrifying. No, it it works on so many levels. Like you're touching something that's not there. Mm-hmm. You think it's your dead husband. You're and then you realize rape you know mm-hmm. and then yeah. i mean after you figure that out and then like she's feeling so vulnerable and then he just smashes her head there's something about yeah. getting your head smashed on a mirror that just really gives me a headache like that <laughs> like understandably so <laughs> no that was so and then what do you do like why aren't you running out of the house like i would just immediately and i think she tries to and then the house fucking devolves it because like I was talking about before, like when you're drunk and like it moves and the hallway gets long mm-hmm. and and then she starts seeing her husband m- kissing and making love to these women and then starts murdering them. Like, that's just a well, bad night. Like, that's a hard, is. bad night for Beth. <laughs> it's a it's a rough it's a rough culmination of how she's feeling. Right. I think that. It is, and like you said, it's disturbing on multiple levels because you have those different elements in that scene, but then you see all of a sudden, again, like all of these 
random women that look like her pop up in the house, which are all of Owen's victims. And you see them like scurrying and hiding. And Bruckner does such a good job of incorporating that the most supernatural elements without any warning, which I actually really like. I like how jarring it is because all of a sudden you're in this like surreal madness without any warning, which it does replicate what I assume a a depressive spiraling episode might be like. This idea that all these things are happening suddenly, whether it be feelings or things you're seeing or interpreting, and it comes out of nowhere and it's all at once. Yeah. There's no gradual build to it. Even if the scares themselves build gradually, the most inexplainable moments of the film come out of nowhere, which is super upsetting. Like the first time I watched it, it was upsetting. The second time I watched it, it was upsetting, but I was more paying attention to like the ways in which the house moves because that just looks awesome. Yeah. But I think at the end of the day, like what sticks with you most is just how distressing it is for this character and this person you're invested in because it's it it's so unassuming in how it's presented, but also you can't really guess what's coming initially when you watch that. Right. And then after that is when she just kind of is overtaken by him, right? The mm -hmm. nothing. Yeah, and she has that moment where like when she finds the replica, the reverse house across the lake, right? She finds this really like fucked up statue yes. of a woman that's like impaled and curled up, which is like some kind of weird artifact thing, which they don't really explain, but I feel like just the unknowingness of it makes it scarier, right? right. That's a big element of this movie that I think even on, it took me two viewings to really get the ending of the movie, but I like how much unknowingness there is in it because it kind of fuels into that idea that to varying degrees, you're not always going to understand different layers of mental illness or the way people are interpreting things. So that sort of like unknowingness, I think, made it even more uncomfortable, which worked in a weird way. Yeah, it was weird to, I really was not expecting, and I, I felt dumb that I wasn't expecting, but I did not expect her to find a little shack in the woods. Like I, I was waiting for another whole house. How did you not know your husband was building a shack in the woods? That's just, but anyway. <laughs> I think though that that's interesting because it it further highlights the the isolation nature with which people that are having depressive episodes might adopt or might find themselves in, right? Being further separated from one another, doing things that you can't really explain. But also I think that it's just... It shows that like in that state of mind, you can't truly understand somebody. And I mean, that gets to the point where early on, we talked about the bar conversation in which that one character is like, you really didn't know. And it's like, by the end of the movie, it's almost very believable. And it becomes less of a ridiculous question just because, yeah, the, the amount of separation that they would have to have for this guy to be going out and stalking these women and murdering multiple women and your significant other doesn't pick up on that. Like, yeah, you guys must be pretty estranged at that point for that to be happening. Absolutely. And that he's brought, and that the neighbor knows, the neighbor knows that he's bringing women over. I loved that mm -hmm. guy. I thought that guy should, we should just mention how great he is. I thought he did a really good job. Yeah. So that character's, um, Mel, who's Vondi Curtis Hall, who I was surprised did not have as big of a part in the movie. Like I was expecting him to play a much bigger role just in terms of, again, you come back to the small scale nature of the movie and you see how few people are in Beth's life. But I think that further reinforces her, the ease with which she slips into isolation, right? Yes. Because she doesn't have that many people checking in on her. And the other guy that was there 
has a better relationship clearly with the husband because he's concealing the fact that the husband has been seen with other women. So, and he's also a character that offset that shows like how you can be experiencing grief in like a a mentally healthy way. Like he lost his mm. wife, he was helped out by Beth and Owen, and mm. um, wants to help her, and then he does. He kind of looks out for her, and I would be irritated too if I found out the neighbor knew something that I didn't know. But the neighbor did not know, you don't, no, then he did not know that he was like murdering these women. He just thought he was having no. an affair with Gal yeah. out, in the, out in the forest in his little shack. Either way though, I don't think Beth, Beth wouldn't have been too thrilled. I wouldn't be too thrilled. You meet this hot guy and he's like, come back to my, I've got a cabin. And then you go to the cabin and you're like, this is fucked, dude. Like, I'm not, you have me walk 10 yards into a forest with a man I just <laughs> I'm bouncing, like not happening. It's not a great, uh, a great predicament to find yourself in, regardless. No, I know, but it's a still a good movie. That's just my personal response. Yeah, <laughs> one that is uh, easily understandable. You get a couple paces in the wilderness with somebody you don't know. It's, can't end. Can't necessarily you always think end. Think that well. someone would find the bodies? I don't know. It just—he was obviously mentally ill too. Like, there's just not—that's not their land. It couldn't be their land. So he's just building a structure on someone's land. That's what that's what Mel says. Mel's like, there can't be anything back here. You can't build out here. It's it's county land or whatever. So you know, I I think I would have probably like built a better wall or a door or something there, so people can't just wander into my rotting property. But then again, he did kill himself, so he's not there to do that anymore, unfortunately. But I guess I I was gonna make a point, and of course, once again, I forgot to circle back around to it. That moment where Beth, during the course of the finale, where Beth has that moment where like all this supernatural shit's happening. She sees the, the presence more and more, the house is shifting, and she begins to have this, uh, her body starts to contort in the way that looks like the uh, statue that he has. And that's like such a fucked up, and this is actually what actually fueled my, uh, the idea that I had about this sort of just relationship between men and women and so how all the violence of course is like men against women in this movie but also like putting a woman in a vulnerable state like that which is just like very weird and very dark and very inexplicable and yet that kind of just further is like well he's this presence is all about like ownership basically and doing what he wants with other people which at the end of the day, especially paired with the ghostly scene that you mentioned, the sort of like intimate nature of that just makes this movie take on a whole nother, just very dark connotation that I was not prepared for. No, and that inspires a thought in my head, which is, had he been planning this since he started constructing the house? So this is like multiple years of planning. Well, that's the thing too, where it's like that feeds into the that idea in the movie where they're like, do you really know a person to a certain degree? It's like, this is not like something that's been happening for three months or four months or five months. And I guess the reality is in that situation, like how can he tell her without maybe acknowledging the presence and then fully succumbing to it? Maybe that has something to do with it. But yeah, it's, I think it's an interesting play on the idea that people sometimes do things that are in your best interest that you might not interpret the right way. Of course, again, this is a very extreme version of that, but I think that it feeds into a reality of relationships where sometimes people might find themselves in a situation where you learn something or you know something, and even if you don't tell the other person and it might be viewed as being detrimental sometimes, you're doing it from a place of 
you're trying to do what's best for them, even if maybe it doesn't end up being the healthiest way or something to that effect. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. It was just <clears throat> what the at the end, the dialogue of the nothing, the presence, I mean, truly was suicidal depression personified. I mean, that's really what is people are, I mean, they're not necessarily hearing it auditorily, but that being told that there's no other option and it's fruitless and what you do doesn't matter. Like that was, I thought the ending, I don't know. I guess we needed Beth. I hate to bring it, not Beth, but Claire. I hate to bring it back to Claire, but we needed Claire to go and get her from the rat. Like, I feel bad for Beth. Like, I would be depressed too if Claire was the only friend that would <laughs> save me Claire's from myself. <laughs> Claire's the extent of your support system. Exactly. I would much rather have the friendly neighbor guy, um, which he did help. And then you see, so Beth is in the Beth is in the um, boat, which is the same boat that Owen shot himself in. Like, I guess that's where the darkness, where the nothing wants us to kill ourselves or whatever. And then she goes to that kind of um, other reality where and he, she's talking to Owen because Owen is truly the personified, like, embodiment of the negative depression, you know. I just really liked that. I think it did a good job of, like, towing the line between like we continue to talk about like the mental health versus the uh supernatural aspect of it i just thought it was good and i'm glad yeah, she i think lived. i'm glad she lived mm -hmm. but i'm not oh, yeah. that it won't come back i think you're definitely right in that the movie would have uh I, I guess it's not a movie i want to return to all that frequently like we said it's not the best feel-good movie but if Beth dies at the end, like that kind of just would have been a, a real, a real bummer of a movie that is not the most uplifting of movies. We might seen. have not done it for this podcast if Beth had. <laughs> I don't know if I would have watched it a second time. I think I would have relied on my notes a little more heavily, but I did really. I like the point that you make, and I think that it's something the film does really well in that it uses the more supernatural aspects to the portrayal of two realities. Again, like it comes back to the idea that like people that are having a depressive episode or something to that effect, they could be playing two different roles, right? The role that you in, your roll out in society where you tell people you're okay, but then as soon as you come in the house, you throw that casserole away or something to that effect. And I think that the pairing of the visuals with the sort of emotional arc that she takes is just really well done and complimented. And the end of the movie is fucking even weirder than uh, the rest of the movie in terms of just seeing this house shifting and moving around and whatnot. Like visually, that's very engaging. And it makes, again, it makes for a, uh, a great vessel for exploring a very uncomfortable topic for a lot of people that need to become a little more comfortable with it because it seems to be a, uh, a reality that could be portrayed in a movie like this. And yet, whether or not it has the supernatural part to it, it still feels very, not compelling, but it feels very truthful to what that might look like. Absolutely, because it's real. Because people fucking kill themselves. And I don't know. It's just like real life. I think that's why I loved it and I hated it. Because I was like, am I at work? You know, like it kind of felt like I was at work. And then, <laughs> but not at all. Like it doesn't, it's not necessarily a movie you throw on to, uh, to unwind after a long day of dealing with uh, maybe 
symptoms is the wrong way to put it, but similar profile. Right. Like I'm not suggesting this to any of my uh, patients who are on hospice. Like this is not like a fun. (laughs) I I would, I would hope not. And that's reassuring to hear you say that, (laughs) but no, this is a movie that I think it's definitely difficult to recommend just because of the subject matter. And people are not familiar with that. And they're not for the most part in dealing with that. And like, I don't know. Sometimes I feel when you, when you recommend movies like that, and of course you have to give people a, a big disclaimer like I did at the beginning of the episode when talking about stuff like this. At the same time, I feel like it's more accessible than just if this was a drama that played into the more realistic elements. I don't know, for me as somebody of obviously that has, is biased and has a great love for the horror genre, it just feels like it is more palatable to introduce a concept like that through something that is at least somewhat more familiar, which is why this movie was heavily marketed, I'm sure, as being a haunted house movie, when in reality, that plays a smaller part in the movie, but I think it works and it's complemented by the more uh, the more realistic side to that coin. Yeah, I, com- I completely agree. And I don't think you can market films based on sad mental health issues. Unless it's like addiction or anxiety and there's this like really clear arc or you have a transformation set in. But when you're dealing with, I mean, to defeat depression is just to continue to live. And so that doesn't always, that's not a very evocative, entertaining subject. <laughs> you can, as long as you continue to suffer, you're winning. <laughs> I think you raise a good point, though, in terms of like media in general's relationship with mental illness or things like that. Right. I mean, unless it is something that is or addiction, for that matter, something that's tied to like a buzzword or something out there where it's like, well, what's in the news right now? It's like the opioid addiction. So shows like Dope Sick that are out there are like getting all these rave reviews and all these things like that. And I haven't seen that. And I'm not saying that it doesn't do a similarly compelling job of making these uncomfortable realities uh, more palatable for people, but you can see why something like that has an audience where something like this maybe doesn't just because of, well, what is something that nobody wants to talk about? Like mental illness. What's something that is very, uh, a hot button topic right now is addiction and things like that for a variety of reasons. But why is one more popular? They're getting more fanfare, uh, for lack of a better word than the other. And it's like, well, one thing is heavily discussed in media right now. The other is still sort of viewed as like a dirty word, even though I don't know. It seems like we're heading in a direction where that conversation is happening more around mental illness. But at the same time, it seems that media in general is still very slow to evolve and sort of just opening up more stories that are probably more relatable to a lot of people, but people are still weird about discussing them and whatnot. You know, what that just reminded me of, you asked me like, like a formative film and I said Wolf Creek but another one and it's I would say it's kind of similar to this film is Requiem for a Dream which really attacks oh, yeah. mental illness like and mm-hmm. that's a fucking disturbing ass film like so if you yeah. make it like super distur- but then you have to then you have to glamorize it or you have to like yeah yeah I think that's why we like these psychological thrillers because you're right it makes things that are uncomfortable to discuss at parties or with our families more palatable to just even think about. Um, but then the problem with that is like, I don't know. 
you don't want to, I don't think it glamorized suicide at all, but, um, like, people survive shooting themselves in the face, you know, and I've had a couple clients that have, like, fucked up noses and shit because they've tried to kill themselves and it didn't work. Like, that, that's a good idea for, here's the, here's the horror film I'm going to write. It's about a disfigured person who tried to kill themselves but it didn't succeed and then somehow that is tied to i don't know i'm gonna write it i'll get i'll come back on and i'll the plot for you if you want to shoot me the first screenplay i'll give you some <laughs> notes for what limited experience i have <laughs> but no i think that you make a good point in that if anything this movie i think has opened up my i don't know about opening up my eyes for it but i think that it just it makes it clear that there are multiple facets of Meant like anything, right? I think that there's definitely multiple experiences that can be drawn from and the more frequently with which we hear about those types of stories and those uncomfortable truths, it starts to normalize it in a way that could be done without glamorizing it. And yes, I think that that's this movie what I was is, trying to think of. <laughs> this movie <laughs> This movie's definitely a good example, I think, of not glamorizing it, right? This is not a movie that tries to paint even though it, the film I guess technically has a happy ending and that Beth survives this but the darkness is still end. there. Right. The darkness is not defeated. Right. And I think that that's the important like shot chaser to it in that she survives, but it's not gone. Which if the, if the film was to just be like, yeah, she defeated it. How realistic is that with dealing with depression, right? It's more about the peaks and valleys and getting out of the valley and then staying at a peak. But the reality is, is that you'll eventually come closer and back up potentially in that valley again. And I think that that is the important shot chaser because what's the final moments of the film when she's looking out into the water, she looks at the boat and you're like, is that a shadow in the water or is that the shadow in the boat? And that's such a fantastic ending to the movie that doesn't have to be a jump scare. It doesn't have to be a sort of cliched setup to a sequel or something like that, which I no would not think this movie would ever no need <laughs> or would not be in that camp. But it is the idea though that it's like, is it defeated or is it defeated for now? which are two very different things. And I think that that's the most perfect way to end this movie. Yes, I agree. I thought it was ominous. Oh, it's a perfect, a perfect way to put it. But um, in rounding out, I guess if there were any points that uh, I passed over for the movie that you wanted to address, but uh, if not, I think we, we did a pretty good job of covering the Nighthouse. Well, I think we need to spend maybe 15, 20 more minutes talking about Claire. <laughs> about Claire. <laughs> Well, here's the deal. I'll have you back on for another uh, another episode, and we'll roast Claire for the first twenty instead of uh, chatting about your first four I minutes. I love it, movie. and it's not the actress; it's just the part she was playing. So, <laughs> but in roasting of Claire, we came to the uh, the agreement that people need to be there for their friends, and if you have a good relationship with them, you can be a little more forceful. Then, absolutely, Bob will cook dinner for us and watch the kids or something like that. Why isn't Bob <laughs> over too? If you're such good friends. Bring the whole clan. I don't know. Don't don't let your depressed friends just be alone. Even if they say they want to be alone, that is not mm -hmm. what they need. They need to be around people. I say Absolutely. that as a depressed person. People come hang out with me. <laughs> come to my party. Just kidding. <laughs> I, ch I, I champion your, uh, that sentiment very much so, Kate. But uh, listen, this was an, a pleasure having you on, and I appreciate you uh, taking the time to chat Nighthouse. This was such a delight, Jay. This was so fun. And I hope I get to continue to watch more films and be asked about them. Absolutely. Anytime you want a recommendation, let me know. I will, uh, I'll shoot you a few recs and maybe I'll have you on again in the future to chat something maybe 
equally terrifying, but maybe a little more lighthearted. Yes, let's we'll see. like a real slasher film or something where there's murder. A little comical relief. More murder. Less more murder. More, less mental illness, more murder. More lighthearted murder. That's what I'm getting from my notes, but I look forward to it. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.